Wow, it went silent. <laughs> Anyhow, welcome. I'm Francis Seeley from GlobalNet21. And um, I'd like to invite you all here this evening. We're doing this meeting in collaboration with the Conway Hall Ethical Society. So, so there are two groups on Meetup who advertise this that are collaborating together. And we also have people from the London Debate Network who also advertise the meetings. So, you know, it's had quite a widespread piece of publicity. Um, and there obviously is clearly an interest in this topic. The uh, meeting we're doing tonight is part of what we hope will be a series of meetings with the Ethical Society here on ethics and politics. We did a sort of pilot one, which was <laughs> quite, quite heated on a Muslim view to war and terror, uh, which we did a, a couple months ago. And we've got another, our next one coming up in January, which is on the ethics of climate change. And the other ones were during the year, we're talking over to, peop talking over to people who've come like tonight. All of you who've come will get a, a note with about six or seven options that you can actually say what you would like out of those options. Um, so we're going to plan those um, in the future. Anyhow, tonight's um, subject is, is human rights and whether they're universal or not. Uh, this afternoon, I was running a workshop on um, radicalization, the positive side of prevent. So if I collapse and fall asleep in the middle, don't, uh, <laughs> you know, don't, don't worry, it's just exhaustion. But radicalization is quite interesting because human rights issue comes into that. Uh, if you come from a group of people who believe that uh, um, the, the, the culture of the country that you're living in doesn't represent what you think it should be, you tend to look upon the human rights issue as something that's imposed upon you. And what I think we're going to discuss tonight is not a clear divide between those people who believe human rights are universal and those who say it isn't, because you don't usually get that debate. It's almost a false debate. Um, and you probably wouldn't get anyone who would argue that. But there is, I think, a number of issues which our two speakers, I think, will uh, sort of speak on. And that is the view that some people believe human rights and the ones that have dominated probably the world up until now in terms of the power structures anyhow is one that's come from the, the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment period. And they are ones which probably emphasize human rights based upon the rights of individuals. And there are some people who say, but that is not just what human rights are. There is also the rights of communities. And there are others who say, right, um, you know, human rights as, as described by Western countries, particularly look upon individualism, whereas some other countries believe you should look at it economic and social rights. And then there are those people as well, and the other debaters, if you come from indigenous communities, you have a particular holistic view of human rights, which may be very different to the Western view. So the question is, you know, is, there human, is human rights universal or should it be? And if it should be, what are the accommodations on a global basis between different cultures that can bring us around to agreeing to some common factors that we all think are important in terms of human rights. They may not be the ones we have today, but it's a long going, ongoing process of discussion, accommodation, and negotiation. Anyhow, we've got two speakers with us today. 
First, we were going to have Dr. Damien Short, who was the director of Human Rights Consortium, and at the last minute, which is a lovely human touch, his babysitter let him down, and he couldn't get a babysitter at the last moment. He could have brought his child here, but maybe that would have been interesting. But anyhow, he, he's persuaded Martin, who works with him, to join us. And Martin, just to tell you who he is, 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 is graduated in human rights, um, at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, and he teaches the, he teaches the MA program in human rights at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. He's done quite a lot of research for a number of organizations, Institute of Commonwealth Advisory Bureau, and the campaign against the, uh, the arms trade as well. He comes, I think, from an anthropology background, is that right? Sociology. Sociology. Um, uh, it amounts to the same thing. Okay. And I didn't think it did. But anyhow, he, he, a sociology, anthropology background, and very often people who come from that background do look at, look at more cultural relativism than not in that extreme sense. And so he's going to take it from that point of view. And then we've got Stephen. Stephen, who is a director of the British Institute of Human Rights and a visiting professor on human rights at Queen's Mary College. And he probably would take a more, I'm probably doing him injustice, he will probably take a more universal approach, or at least to say, if there isn't one, there should be. But anyhow, um, you can tell me off if I got it wrong. Um, anyhow, we're going to start with Martin, who will give the, the more relativist approach, and then Stephen, who said he'd like to go second because he won't have anything to argue with if he doesn't go first, um, is going to talk second. They're going to talk about for 10 to 15 minutes. Then after that, you come in. What I'm going to do, as soon as they finish, I'm going to say, just pause for a minute and think about your questions before you ask them. Even talk to the person next to you if you want to about what the points are you want to say. Someone told me that's a nice, nice icebreaker. I don't know if it is, but we'll see if it works. But just a pause before we go into the, the main discussion. And then it's all yours. You come in, you make comments, you ask questions, and uh, Stephen and, and Martin will respond to that. So let's start with, uh, with you, and thank you for doing this. Hi. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, so, yes, I just a couple of corrections. Uh, I, I, I taught at the School of Advanced Study um, I'm also an English language teacher, and I've just been made unemployed, so my right to work has been denied, unfortunately. Uh, so if anyone's got a job, let me know. Uh, but um, so, um, so I, I want to take an approach um, with a, a relativist bent. I, I just want to say, I just want to preface it by saying, of course, in my heart of hearts, I'm a strong um, believer in, in human rights, instinctively and intuitively. And being a political activist for the last 14, 15 years, whether it's in, in the anti-war movement, anti-fascist movement, of course, uh, deep down, I believe in preserving people's human dignity and uh, ensuring the, that people have the minimally good life, which is what usually human rights are explained to provide. Um, so, but what, what I want to, to, to argue, I guess, essentially, is that universe, the, the, the notion or the doctrine that human rights are universal, uh, the universalism concept, it's tied in with this notion that there is a, a kind of a, a, a natural basis, a natural foundation to human rights, uh, an, analogous to... The, the laws of physics, for example, that if we simply observe nature, we can discern uh, these, these values, this, this moral system. 
Um, and so therefore they are universally applicable through time and place, everywhere and at every time. Um, and of course I can see the attraction to this, this concept because of course it, it provides it with an extra sheen of respectability and legitimacy by drawing an analogy between it and the, the natural sciences. Um, but I think it exposes it to a weakness. It, it, it makes it vulnerable to attack uh, because by simply employing a historical or empirical approach, you can very quickly um, deconstruct this notion and, and demonstrate that human rights have not been applicable universally throughout time and irrespective of place. So if, for example, we think about the, the great peasant rebellion in 1381 in, in England. Uh, the great radical John Ball, he, he of course, he spoke of this concept of justice uh, and some kind of resolution of the demands and claims that peasants made on the, the establishment, on the aristocracy, the, the landed gentry and the king, but it was all couched in terms of an appeal to a higher authority. The language of rights talk didn't exist. Um, and of course, if we think more contemporarily, um, the notion of, for example, the right to privacy on the internet, which is of course something that's very salient and, and um, very pertinent right now with the invasions uh, carried out by you know, American and uh, British uh, security services the NSA, of course, GCHQ. Well, of course, we all naturally, we, we intuitively relate to this concept that we deserve to have privacy on the internet, but it would mean, it'd be meaningless before the invention of the internet. Now, I know that might seem like a glib idea, but it, it demonstrates the principle that you can't argue, I think, that human rights are universally applicable throughout time and place. Um, in fact, I would argue, and, and, and furthermore, um, human rights often collide with each other. So they compete and clash. Um, so within human rights talk and in, in jurisprudence in the legal kind of realm, uh, they often talk about human rights being voided by another right. So one right takes precedence over another, or in the case of uh, an existential threat, uh, a government might suspend certain human rights, the right to freedom of movement in a natural, during a natural disaster, for example, or in times of war. So clearly, unlike laws of physics or chemistry, they are not universally applicable throughout time and place. So I don't think this kind of um, uh, recourse to this idea of what was no, is known as the natural rights-based theory, uh, that there is a natural route to human rights, is necessarily the strongest one. In fact, I think you can argue that human rights are historically uh, contingent human artifacts that have evolved through time. Um, and so they, they have a history and they have an evolution. Okay, and I think perhaps more than any other theorist of the last few hundred years, um, and this is exposing some of my sociological kind of predilections now, I think Karl Marx was best predisposed to demonstrating how um, 
for example, or rather looking to demonstrate the historical and social causes for the, the construction and evolution of social ideas and conventions and institutions. Um, and he argued quite convincingly that the rise of rights-based talk, of the rise of, um, for example, the rights that we associate in the French Revolution, uh, the, the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, or the, the American Revolution, the, the, the Charter of, of Freedoms. Um, he argued quite convincingly um, that and at least the negative rights, because we have to make a distinction between negative rights and positive rights. Negative rights meaning, you know, we want to have, be free from inter interference from an, an authority like a state or a government, and positive rights which demand or necessitate intervention by an authority to enable you to exercise those rights. So for example, the freedom of speech is a negative right. Um, of course, the right to work or welfare or the right to leisure is a positive right. But, but focusing on negative rights in particular, Marx did argue um, that they represented the rights of what he called, and of course his language was, was um, of its time, um, not necessarily gender neutral, but he, he argued that, just to quote him very quickly, he said, um, um, just about, yes, he said, none of the supposed rights of man therefore go beyond the egoistic man. That is, an individual separated from the community withdrawn into himself, wholly preoccupied with his private interest and acting in accordance with his private caprice. The only bond between men is natural necessity, need and private interest, the preservation of their private property and their egoistic persons. So some of the, the founding concepts um, of uh, natural rights, the rights of man, uh, included this right to be free from interference, um, f f uh, and also the right to the preservation of property, and crucially, private property. Um, some of the most important Enlightenment thinkers, like John Locke, for example, founded his whole theory in his famous treaties, the two, two treaties of government, his whole theory on this idea that the only way you can guarantee your freedom is by owning private property. And of course, you can see the devastation that 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 a doctrine wrought on the world when, for example, the British colonists arrived on the shores of Australia and deemed that the Aboriginals had no entitlement to the land because they were not um, proper responsible custodians of private property. They couldn't see it anywhere, and so they simply took it. Um, so, um, what, what this means is that if we can begin to understand that human rights are like any other ideology or any other idea, a human construct, uh, historically contingent and subject to evolution, we can begin to understand some of the structures of power that underpin their production and their evolution. Um, and so, I just want to quote you one more, one more piece, which was quite, quite, um, it's quite a powerful uh, quote where he argued that essentially the doctrine of the rights of man was coextensive with the capitalist mode of producing things, that the capitalist relationships. Um, in fact, the doctrines of the rights of man and capitalist structures 
uh, were mutually advantageous to each other. They supported each other. Okay, so to illustrate, I'll just quote you something he wrote in Capital. He said, This sphere that we are deserting, within whose boundaries the sale and purchase of labor power goes on, is in fact a very Eden of the innate rights of man. There alone rule freedom, equality, property, and Bentham. Freedom because both buyer and seller of a commodity, say of labor power, are constrained, are constrained only by their own free will. They contract as free agents. And the agreement they come to is but the form in which they give legal expression to their common will. Equality, because each enters into relation with the other, as with a simple owner of commodities. And they exchange equivalent for equivalent. Property, because each disposes only of what is his own. Uh, factories, in the case of the employer, labor power, in the case of the worker. And, and Bentham, because each looks only to himself. The only force that brings them together and puts them in relation with each other is the selfishness, the gain, and the private interests of each. Each looks to himself only, and no one troubles himself about the rest. And just because they do so, do they all in accordance with the pre-established harmony of things or under the auspices of an all-shrewd providence work together to their mutual advantage for the common weal and in interests of all. And so I think essentially this, I want to maybe conclude, there was so much I wanted to talk about, but because I don't know how much time I have left. Four minutes. Um, I want to maybe conclude by saying that many of the uh, most important thinkers, liberal thinkers when it came to uh, devising a, a justification for universal human rights, whether it was rooted in nature or whether it was rooted in a hypothetical um, original state, like, uh, for example, Hobbes and Hume. What they argued was that human rights, or they called it rights uh, or, or you know, natural rights, but we call them human rights. They argued that there were necessary conditions um, of morality, or what John Rawls, the famous liberal theorist who devised the, the concept of the veil of ignorance called circumstances of justice. And what they argued was that we have to assume that first of all human beings are capable of a limited amount of altruism or generosity. And second of all, that there is a permanent state of scarcity, material scarcity. And that these two conditions lead to um, necessarily conflicts between competing claims on those limited resources. Um, so essentially it's, it assumes, whether it was Hume or Hobbes or John Rawls, they assume that man or, or human beings are partially egoistic, necessarily egoistic, and that there will always be a scarcity of material resources, and so we must use these rights to regulate those competing claims. Um, but I would argue that it's possible to, to suggest that this, these human rights, they presuppose a world of inequality, they presuppose and assume the continued existence of class, they assume the continued existence of exploitation and oppression, and so in some ways they act as a foil, uh, as a kind of mirage that 
conceals the, the iniquities and the injustices of a system. And so we should perhaps uh, yearn for and fight for a world which, goes, which doesn't necessitate those human rights, those doctrines of human rights in the first place. Um, that's, of course, not to say that we shouldn't use human rights for the furtherance and the embetterment and the expansion of the realm of human freedom. Like I said at the beginning of the talk, I have been an activist for many years. But I think we should, first of all, recognize that they are historically contingent, uh, therefore understand that sometimes they are underpinned by structures of power, and therefore can be abused to consolidate and entrench that power. Take, for instance, the doctrine of humanitarian intervention, um, or what others might call humanitarian imperialism, um, and judge the, the individual on a case-by-case -case basis the merits of individual human rights, their social efficacy, uh, and not assume that they are ahistorical and applicable throughout time. Um, I'll th I guess I'll wrap it up there. Um, but thank, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. You'll have plenty of time to come back with lots of other points. Okay, so human rights are not inalienable. inalienable. They're uh, human constructs. Const constructs can change over time. They are sometimes a mirage to hide underlying factors that are probably more important. And they sometimes are um, crutches, if you like, to support power structures and power elites. Do you agree with that? Well, I'm not sure I, I'm, I, I disagree as much as I'm um, powerfully um, supposed to. Um, one of the great miseries of being um, an international human rights lawyer, because that's in fact what I am for my, um, for my sins, is um, everyone always assumes they know what I think about the world before asking my, my opinion. So um, this is how I would look at the problem, really, or the challenge. Um, I mean, this question of rights, of course, has a very, very long history. And it's a history which goes um, way back, if I may say, <laughs> before things like Magna Carta, which is only 800 years old, by the way. Yeah? I've spent the last year being <laughs> invited to talks about Magna Carta under some kind of strange conception that uh, English people have that they invented human rights 800 years ago in Runnymede, and um, um, that's probably a talk for another day. Um, but this question of rights has obviously a very, very, very long history. In fact, I would say that ever since human beings acquired the power of communication, we have worried and, won worried and wondered about our role in the universe and our relationships to those who have dominion or power over us. This is um, something which just goes back to the dawn of time. You see in all the ancient philosophies and religions, and indeed in modern philosophies and religions, this great struggle to kind of work out, you know, what is a, what is a good life? When it comes to human rights, we have to recognise, I believe, that the actual term human rights only really came into common usage in um, the early part of the last century. And I think one of the, um, if you like, one of the greatest fallacies that sometimes obscures 
um, progress on this debate is there is this terrific assumption that modern human rights, universal human rights, is simply the automatic next step from the European Enlightenment. Most of us um, who have a European heritage grow up being informed about something to do with the European Enlightenment and all those questions about natural rights and so on. And um, I'm not, I'm neither a philosopher nor a historian, but um, we're kind of familiar with the idea of this conversation to kind of try and assert the, um, the rights of man and what is required in social structures to, um, to um, resist tyranny. And so we're very familiar normally with, you know, what led to the American um, Revolution and the Declaration of the Bill of Rights there and the French Declaration and so on. This is something which um, often we're very familiar with. But I think in reality, in the modern world, when we talk about human rights, we are talking about something which absolutely is woman and man-made. We are not talking about something which um, people have sort of um, peered into the soul or history of humanity and tried to find something which is empirical. We are talking about something which I believe has been constructed. It's been constructed for a particular purpose and it's been constructed in the light of particular historical circumstances. And those historical circumstances, of course, are the Second World War. And if you like... I would almost say the failure of the Enlightenment project, the realization that this um, European notion that we are the cradle of civilization, yeah, had led to the rise of fascism and totalitarianism, and that actually it was simply not enough to assert the rights of individuals against some kind of tyrannical state. We needed a much broader understanding of human rights in order to give substance to the idea that was very much in the minds of the framers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the idea that never again, never again will we see the um, extraordinary events of the Second World War with um, the industrialised slaughter of... Um, six million Jews and any other people that were seen to be um, not human, yeah, alongside all the other tragedies that took place across the globe during that period. So I think the best way of understanding the question, are human rights universal, is to understand that human rights are universal by design. The framers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came together and after a process which um, involved a huge, huge um, attempt to embrace ideas from philosophies and cultures from all around the globe, with, with some notable exceptions, we're well aware that um, none of the countries of Africa were represented at the time, um, came up with, I think, the, the, the concept of human rights being universal in this sense, but only in this sense, in the sense that human rights are universal in the sense that the only requirement, the only qualification for having human rights was merely being human. And this actually marked a departure from the um, early antecedents of um, 
Enlightenment thinking. If you go back to the um, much lauded American Bill of Rights, we see very quickly that um, whilst it was self-evident that um, the creator made all men equal, um, slaves were only three-fifths of man. If we look at the American, the French Declaration of Rights of Man, um, it didn't really, it didn't really promote a sense of personhood that allowed women and men to be equally human. So, the if you like, the great insight of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the sense in which human rights are claimed to be universal, is the claim that the only qualification to have human rights is to be human. Yeah? And not an assertion that all human beings are the same. If you like an assertion that all human beings are fundamentally different, but because they are all human, they should act towards each other in the spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. Those, of course, are the words of the first article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, in other words, human rights in the modern age, I would contend, are universal only in that sense of we are seeking to build a society or societies in which the essential dignity of the human being, of the human person, is fully recognised, irrespective of all the things such as race and class and culture which normally divide us. In that extent, to that extent, they are, of course, um, very controversial. And I don't think they are intended to be a mere reflection of the world as it is. In fact, actually, um, the world as it is is a world in which, perhaps too often, we are divided by what makes us different. That we perhaps naturally don't understand that the need to reach out to the stranger because they are also simply a human being is more important than to protect ourselves, our family, those who are close to us, those who are um, of our own type. Yeah? So human rights are intended to be universal only in that sense. And I would add that if you look back at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they also, they also add um, another transformation from the traditional Enlightenment thinking, which sometimes we are much more familiar with, is the idea of responsibilities. If you look at Article 29 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it talks about all human beings having duties to the community in which alone they can fully develop their personality. So I don't know how many times... I have been told that human rights are naturally sort of somehow individualistic. But in fact, what happened after the Second World War with the attempt to construct a new thinking about human rights was human rights as something where all of us do indeed have responsibilities to our fellow human beings. Ultimately, human rights are universal only in the sense that human beings can never again be a means to an end. They can never be instrumentalised. Now, this is actually a rather simple but very profound, very profound idea. It is not the world as it is today, but it sets at least a direction of travel, a direction of travel where those power structures which invade every aspect of human existence yeah, can be tested against this very, very profound observation of 
are we actually teaching, are, are we treating um, all human beings equally on the basis of their shared human dignity? This simple but profound understanding of what universal means is something which has the power absolutely to transform power relationships. It's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a work in progress. Um, but that is the extent, I think, only in which human rights are universal. Oh, okay. Um, I, 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 sorry, when you're waving that, I thought you wanted me to stop. So I, yeah. <laughs> I think we should also, also recognise that um, the other part of the Human Rights Project is the power of the Human Rights Project to inspire and to give people hope. And I think that all too often when I am in this country, I, I hear that human rights are always narrowly defined as civil liberties, as... Um, only the negative rights, and that somehow um, that is a great failing of human rights. Yeah? If, you, if we are able to imagine for a moment yeah, what I believe to be the truth, yeah, which is that actually um, the peoples of Western Europe are no longer in the vanguard of claiming justice and freedom. Yeah? Elsewhere in the world, the idea of human rights still has a great capacity to empower people, to encourage people to work together to seek social justice. In this country, we may well have a government which is currently threatening to scrap the Human Rights Act and remove us from this painstakingly developed universal human rights system. But elsewhere in the world, it still has the power to motivate, but to, to allow that power to um, remain potent, yeah? We do have to understand, I think, that human rights and the old enlightenment values of liberty are not the same thing. And we do a great disservice to the idea of human rights if we assume they are. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. So human rights are not the old system based upon the ideas of liberty. Human rights are universal, universal, but by design, they're part of the Second World War settlement where we expect people to be compassionate and care for each other and there to give dignity. So two interesting views. What we're going to do now is open it up to you, uh, give you a pause to think about what you're going to ask first. But what I, the, the, the procedure I usually do when we have a large audience is I say, you don't get a chance to ask a second question if people who haven't asked a first question still have their hands up. So that's sort of to be fair to everyone. So if you're going to ask your first question, spend a minute now thinking what it is so that it's a good one, because <laughs> it will be maybe your only one with a large audience or comment. Um, and if you want to talk to anyone next to you about it, if you've got a colleague or friend, please do so. So let's just pause for a minute while you just think about what you may ask. Okay, for a moment I thought we were in a friend's meeting house and it was a nice, quiet uh, setting. Um, okay, let's take two or three questions in, in one go and then we'll take another two or three. You had your hand up first, didn't you? Okay, so you're saying that should be a basic human right not to infringe on the right of others through property rights. Take that point. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, who else had their hands up? You, you did, yeah. I, you, you were one of the first three. Yeah. Pardon? Uh, yeah, I may have to get up. No, no, I'll let you have a microphone. Far be it from me to deny your human rights to the microphone. Well, thank you very much. I'm honoured. Uh, uh, to this first speaker, I didn't catch your name, unfortunately. Um, thank you. Uh, I think human rights are universal, without a shadow of doubt, because without... Because the alternative to that means you're regarding people as a group of people as subhuman. As soon as you don't, as soon as you enter into that area of human rights, are universal. So instantly, you're, I like interested in your idea. Of what is subhuman then? And also, uh, your idea of the uh, the internet has been a, a factory uh, foundation of your argument. The internet is just a tool, another tool of um, watching over people. And that's always the elite. When I say elite, I mean Oxbridge in this country have always ruled over the people and used secret means to do this. And the Catholic Church in Europe have done this from uh, actually getting people to confess their sins and then using that information against their, that town or individual. So the internet is just a tool of uh, repression, like religion is used as a tool of repression. So it's always happened. So the universal human rights applies in that then. Thank you. And one more person who had the hand up. Uh, I think you did. You were one of the first three. Do you want the microphone? Okay. Well, let's take let's take those in order. Maybe if you would take uh, the 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 first one, which was about uh, wealth and whether accumulation of wealth uh, should not be allowed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly think we would live in a better world if um, the endless unlimited accumulation of wealth was addressed. Um, but I think that uh, the, the narrow answer to your question is that most of the ideas of human rights, particularly if we are looking at kind of human rights in the international arena as something connected to um, the conduct of states and trying to create limits on the conduct of states, yeah? That... that um, that world is in, is in fact rather silent on on a kind of quest, economic questions like that. It really doesn't address itself to the question of people having too much money. It addresses itself to the quest, question of people not having enough money to have a life which allows them to flourish. Um, in a sense, I think that that's probably not a weakness of the system because one thing I sometimes worry about is sometimes, you know, um, so many different claims can, are made for human rights. I sometimes worry the entire thing will collapse under the weight, put on its shoulders, yeah? I mean, human rights are not the only really important thing going on in the world. So I think the answer is that currently a right... Um, I, don't, I don't quite know how to frame it, really. The idea that accumulating... Um, limitless wealth would somehow be a breach of human rights is not really recognised. Um, though, of course, the right of sovereign states to um, tax that wealth very heavily is indeed very, very strongly recognised. OK, and the, the two questions that, that uh, this gentleman asked, one was about watching we must subhuman, and the other question about the internet and how that impacts on human rights. Yeah, if I could briefly come back to the, on the first uh, question as well, if that's okay. Um, 
I, I, I agree. I personally think that, um, the, that you've touched on one of the fundamental contradictions within the doctrine of, of human rights because um, going back to, uh, I don't know if anyone, how many of you are familiar with the, the Putney debates during the English, or just after the English Civil War that took place between the Levellers and um, other members of the, the New Model Army, Cromwell's army. There were radical elements there who wanted to restructure English society, redistribute land, uh, that it should be a common good. You know, the, the last that is he shall be the first that is he. The world will be turned upside down, etc. Um, and uh, one of the generals, Oliver Cromwell's generals, Henry Ireton, he argued, he said, look, um, I hope you're not saying that if there are these natural rights that are, you know, uh, equally applicable to all people, um, that they are truly universal, um, that, that they are non-discriminatory, then I'm, I hope you're not suggesting that applies to property because then logically, the logical extension of that is that everyone should have equal access to the enjoyment of property, the exercise of property and its disposal, uh, and that would fundamentally undermine the institution of private property and its current distribution. Um, so there must be a limit there. And ever since, I think, human rights advocates, scholars and philosophers have struggled to reconcile the right to property with the, the whole gamut of the other human rights. Um, so, but coming back to your sec the second question, the second speaker, um, I, I'm sorry, I don't know your name as well. I didn't catch it. Leon. Um, no, you'll be relieved to hear that I don't consider people subhuman um, uh, as a general rule. Uh, <laughs> what, what I was trying to say is that if we understand that human rights are a social construct, a product of history, that they are an emergence of, um, of th from human needs, then we can understand that the human rights that we presently have, as understood, as codified in law, as embedded in instit institutions of power, are not necessarily immutable and uh, eternal. And they can be subject to change. Um, for instance, the right to property, <laughs> for, you know, as an example. Um, and so, um, let me give you d uh, sort of a, a nice way of summing up what I was trying to say. Again, going back to Marx, he, you may be familiar with some of the things he said about religion. Um, and of course, he was an ardent defender of the right to freedom of religious conscience. But he said, the, aboli the abolition of the illusory happiness of the people is a demand for, the real, for their real happiness. A call to abandon illusions in, the con in their condition is a call to abandon conditions that require illusions. And so you could argue a call to abandon illusions about the rights of man and justice is a call to abandon the conditions of morality uh, and the circumstances of justice that I referred to earlier. In other words, we can build a world where they do not presuppose the necessity to, to have recourse to these various uh, doctrines of human rights. The internet question. The internet question, um, I, I'm not entirely sure if I understood what you meant about, um, I, I was using the example of the internet just to illustrate how 
you know, they, there, is a his, there is a history to human rights or, or natural rights. So to use another example, for example, uh, the right to freedom of press. We couldn't have that right before the invention of the printing press. Okay, so again, it's just a, an example to illustrate how certain rights are products of historical circumstances. Um, and so we have the right to demand that um, perhaps some of those human rights can be subject to change and, and, depend, and they are dependent on human need. Um, so, for instance, if human rights are ever invoked to stop people from fighting for emancipation, then that is the ultimate acid test, isn't it? And that has happened in history, where the oppressed peoples around the world fighting anti-colonial struggles, whether it's in Algeria, for example, against French colonialism, or whether it's against the Kikuyu in Kenya who are fighting martial law against the British colonists, as I've studied recently, were condemned for, for killing and violence but they were fighting for their emancipation. So are we to stand here and wag our finger at those people who have suffered centuries of oppression by invoking the doctrine of human rights? I think that's when it becomes problematic. Okay, and then there was a third question which you might want to take up. That is, you know, human rights may, be, may have been created by God or by natural law or by human beings. And if they are designed by human beings, they have to be accepted by human beings. And if they're not accepted by some human beings, how can they be universal? Yes, there's no requirement to accept them. Um, I mean, um, one of the human rights that you can refuse to accept is your human right to your own conscience and so there is no there is no compulsion to agree with human rights because um the right to conscience is so so um so important in the human rights lexicon but um i, I think the point about this given by god or arising through nature or, or socially constructed is that you know if one looks at the history of human rights yeah it has been sort of unsurprisingly if you go back kind of more than 200 years it has been very much dominated by the idea of um, human rights somehow emanating from, from God and natural law and so on. Yeah? And the, the modern system post-Second World War very, very studiously avoided um, claiming that human rights came from anywhere like that. They were purposefully constructed, um, if you like, not to be claiming that they came from God or from, from, from science, yeah? But um, to be um, a common aspiration for all humankind. And of course, they were also um, intended to be something which, for good or for bad, um, did recognize that the world was um, decided, divided up into sovereign states. There is something rather uh, intriguingly state-centric about the way human rights are understood in the modern world, I think. They are, they are about, if you like, recognising that human beings live in communities and often states or parastatal entities play a very important role in that, but trying to find some basic limits based on considerations of our common humanity to the power that is otherwise exercised in the name of state or parastatal power. 
but it does, in the modern world, not require them to have been given to us by any, um, any external force. Okay, um, let's take uh, two or three more people. I'll get up in case they dem you demand the microphone. Okay. Do you want the microphone? Would it be fair to say that um, at any point in time, human rights are the bare minimum that the class which is hanging precariously um, at the point where they could fall into victims have enough power to instate uh, the human rights? Um, w would it be fair to say that? Did I make that clear? What, what I'm saying is, at any point in history, human rights is always the barest minimum of what the elite can get away with. And it's always, um, the human rights are always fought by a certain class that is not the, the class that's being victimized, but just above that, because they realize they could slip into that very carefully. Thank you. I think the uh, question's been answered, really. Uh, I was looking at the size of community and how the, the, the rights within one community may be different if it's smaller than the rights of a much larger neighbouring community. And what rights do people have to move between the communities if they don't like the, r the rules and the rights they have in the particular commun community in which they're living? Okay, and um, one more question. Let's take another lady. Um, my question is really addressed to Mark. Um, you seem to be saying that we need to have the kind of world in which human rights don't exist, that human rights um, in some way impede progress towards a more ideal world. Uh, am I right in that? Um, uh, so I think if I could turn the telescope around and look from the descriptive end, I'd like to ask you how you see the first steps towards uh, creating a society like that without human rights instruments. Okay. Do you want to take that, that question first, uh, uh, Martin, that, that, that uh, you know, human rights uh, can impede progress, or you think that that can happen, and how can you have the, the progress that the lady talks about without the basis of human rights? Yeah, um, I think it's... I, what I'm trying to say is that human rights, because they are historical constructs, which are often products of human social need, um, but very often underpinned by structures of power, they often express the idealized vision of an elite class and sometimes, and therefore can be used to entrench that power. But it doesn't mean that they can't also be used by subaltern classes, those who are struggling, or groups who are, you know, dispossessed, persecuted groups to, who can also use those same human artifacts to fight for their emancipation. So it works both ways, is what I'm saying. Um, but ultimately, a recourse to human rights only ever promises, logically, I think, to perfect the system that we have already rather than move beyond it. Um, and so, do, how do I envisage us getting to that 
what bridge do I see that can get us there? Well, it has to be mass struggle, and it has to be mass struggle of of working people, of uh, the dispossessed, the landless poor. We're seeing those struggles taking place right now in Latin America, in Bolivia, for example, in Ecuador, um, all around us. You just have to open your eyes. You can see them taking place. And there are other di moral discourses that we can use. For example, solidarity. You know, the, the discourse of solidarity can also be used to rally us and bring us together and build communities. So essentially, I think, r direct democracy, a form of direct democracy which extends into the realms of the economy and not just politics, you know, participatory democracy, um, grafted onto mass societies where we're not held, uh, we're not ruled at the behest or at the, at the whims, should I say, of what Noam Chomsky called private tyrannies. So where we can organize our own communities, organize our own hospitals, schools, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so dismantling those very structures that necessitate the need to recourse for human rights. And the, the last thing I would say is that human rights, that one of the other problems I think for me is this, this kind of legal fetishism. So, this idea that if we codify the human rights and we use uh, courts of arbitration, that that will somehow resolve and do away with the problems um, that they presuppose. Uh, we can't always reduce human rights violations to individuals. You can't put a structure of exploitation um, on the court stand. Um, it's, th there have to be other ways of resolving these issues which go beyond simply legal means. Yeah, I think you partly answered this age's question, but maybe you want to respond to that as well, that human rights are what the establishment, the elite, will allow, and it doesn't go beyond that. Uh, well, I mean, I think that um, human rights are ultimately are about power and trying to manufacture a scheme which limits that power um, in order to preserve a shared sense of our common human human dignity. Now, you use the word minimum. Um, human rights, if you like, the ambition of human rights is in many ways only the ambition to observe some basic minimum standards. They are, if you like, um, um, a floor, not a ceiling, yeah? Um, perhaps the events of the Second World War um, reminded those who are most involved in bringing the current system into being of just how vital um, some basic minimum standards um, might be. Um, the other side of this, though, of course, is um, in whatever political structures we inhabit, um, even the ones which might be um, much more the result of much more direct, participative, democratic processes, yeah? Um, there will always be the minorities, the unpopular. Um, I don't normally predict the future. I normally leave my crystal ball at home when I come and give talks, actually. Yeah? But I think the diversity of the human spirit is such yeah, that um, whatever way we construct power, yeah, um, we can probably recognize that that power will leave some people outside it. In fact, the more, um, if you like, the more 
the more robust and democratic the way structures are brought into being, the more maybe they will feel um, entitled um, to use that power against those who are the minority. In many ways, the thing about universal human rights, which um, I think we need to cling on to most carefully, yeah, is the role they the role they play in protecting um, those who are not popular, those who don't have power, those who are outside the mainstream, from those who do have power, however that power has been constructed, whether by popular activism, revolution, or the ballot box. That, I think, is really the most important aspect of human rights. Okay, and Terence's uh, important point, uh, I, I'll ask you both that, but if you could do brief answers, because I want to get as many people in as possible. I mean, you know, in a period of global globalization where there is freedom of movement and freedom of labor and you have to move, very often means you have to leave a community that you want to live in, you have to go and live into a community that you don't want to live in. Is there a human right about being in a community that you can relate to and not having to be forced to move into a liberal concept of human rights, which might mean freedom of movement and forced movement sometimes? Uh, I think probably I'm not the, the best qualified to answer that. I'm not a human rights lawyer. Um, and I'm sure uh, if I was a refugee lawyer or an immigration lawyer, I'd probably give you a more coherent answer. But Obviously, human rights are not dependent on law and codification. Um, they exist in our minds and in our culture, independent of uh, laws and statutes. I, I personally believe people should have the right to freedom of movement, that there should be a free, uh, untrammeled right of labor and people to move freely throughout the world, unconditionally. Um, I'm not someone who fears immigration. Um, I get my instinctively um, I my heart goes out to people who flee war-torn situations persecution I'm appalled at what our government has done recently with the the Syrian refugee crisis and all the lies that have been disseminated and the pitiful um, commitment to bring 20,000 in over the next four years is like a drop in the ocean um, so my it, I think, for me, morally, I think there should be this kind of limitless, untrammeled right. How we would bring that about in the framework of this global capitalist system, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a, perhaps another meeting. But, but, I mean, Terence's point as well, as well was about your right to live in a community, not live in another community, and when movement means that sometimes you have to do that. What is the conflict of human rights in that case? Um, well, um, I agree with Martin's point about, um, by the way, the way that human rights have been somewhat fetishized as law. Um, but um, if we rely on the law for a second, human rights law um, recognizes the right to freedom of movement, subject only to reasonable, reasonable restrictions. Um, so if you're in one community, you certainly should have the right to move to another community. It also recognizes the right to play a full and equal part in the way that your community is constructed politically. So in other words, a right, a right to um, democratic participation and expression and so on, yeah? It doesn't yet, I think, recognize exactly the right that you were hoping to claim, but human rights do evolve as we become more sensitive to, um, to human needs. Okay, Ed had his hand up and then the lady at the back. 
when you've had your hand up and then you'll be in the next round. <laughs> uh, th uh, thank you. Um, I think we're in a position where uh, uh, human rights are uh, something that have to be suspended from time to time and the uh, way in which I view this is that uh, if we have people who offend against our concept of human rights, uh, like ISIS, for example, we have to suspend their human right not to be killed in order to prevent them from killing us. Uh, so human rights in that sense are inevitably due to some interpretation under certain times and certain circumstances. Uh, if I could just pick up another uh, point in terms of the, uh, the internet, which uh, clearly is not very popular with uh, the gentleman sitting behind me here. Um, to my mind, it's simply an extension of a freedom to communicate, that we started with spoken communication and then started scratching words on cave walls and eventually we came up with a printing press and now we use the internet. And the principle in terms of rights seems to be a freedom of communication and whether it's uh, uh, spoken electronic or printed, it is academic and maybe it'll come by thought transfer in another 500 years, I really don't know. Uh, so, um, uh, seeing the internet as a tool of repression is, is something that I can't entirely agree with. Uh, in terms of wealth, surely if you say to somebody you can only create wealth up to the point that you have £100,000 or a million pounds or £100 million pounds or whatever it may be, you're imposing a right not to be successful and creative on that individual, uh, which seems perverse to me. Thank you very much. Um, the lady at the back, Tr trust you to have to make me walk all the way back here. Um, I think partially, um, the question I was going to initially ask has already partially been answered by Martin in terms of, uh, the question was, what was uh, both the speaker's um, personal opinion on the Syrian refugee situation from a human rights perspective, which, as I said, has been partly answered, but if they could, and the other guest speaker could also give their opinion, it'd just be interesting to get their take on it, really. In terms of human right, um, uh, you know, with, with how the European countries have uh, to date dealt with the situation, what is their take from a human rights perspective? Thank you. And then the other person was right in the front. And you'll be in the next round as well. Uh, just, just a little technical thing to start with. I'm, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Uh, Stephen. Stephen, thank you. Um, you, you did sort of uh, mention the word um, uh, the dawn of time. That uh, these questions have been argued since the dawn of time. I would argue that's not so. I would say the dawn of civilization, perhaps. Um, We've been, uh, we've been uh, quite a long time on this planet and as Homo sapiens, we've been here quite a lot longer than the period which began with the beginnings of uh, civilization. And it's with, it's with the civilization settling down uh, which all these problems really began, particularly and most importantly, the denial of any humanity to women at last, they're just about beginning to, to stand up and come out into the public space and not being allowed to uh, in many places, of course. I think this is one of the major obstacles uh, 
to the continuing uh, development of human rights. If you look at all, all the little uh, dictatorships around the world, none of them is run by women. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's something which is continually and continuously <coughs> overlooked. And, uh, and, um, and people write from this perspective. <clears throat> from this perspective, talk about the rights of man and blah, 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 uh, as though that, that covers us all. Uh, but I just want to mention that. Right, thanks. So you're in favour of women dictators, are you? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, no, but, but the, the point... No, no, yeah, if you want to. <laughs> no. No, OK. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, but, but I mean, the point, the point, the point you raised that the human rights issues have been there since the beginning of the time. You were saying that they, uh, human rights law or human, we, we look on human rights in the way we do since the middle of the last century. But surely the issues have been there for a long time, and people have looked at some way of codifying it, as this gentleman said, from time immemorial. No, I think, I mean, I, I, I think we could agree. I should have said since recorded time. Yeah? I, I, um, historical time, yeah. I perhaps, um, I perhaps um, overstated my case by saying the dawn of time, yeah. Um, but the point I was making, which is an important point, is the conversation we are having here today has this history um, stretching right back to, um, what do you call it? Historical time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, 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 um, I find the word civilization one I don't nor normally use, really. Um, okay, shall I answer some of these questions? Well, the, the ISIS one, yeah? If you take this party, I'll answer the next one, yeah? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, what about the, the, the question that Ed raised about, um, I mean, you might, uh, you know, take him on about wealth, but his first question really about the suspension of human rights. Sometimes you have to suspend human rights in order to protect the human rights of others. Wow. Uh, that, that's um, a thorny one, isn't it, to tackle. Um, so maybe I would draw an analogy um, with, for example, you know, if you deal with the problem of fascism. Um, in Britain, um, the British Union of Fascists, led by Oswald Mosley, uh, the way they were dealt with in the 30s uh, by working-class activists, trade unionists, Communist Party members and so on, was not to provide them with a platform to voice their opinion and express their freedom, freedom of speech and to debate them, uh, but to smash them, basically, and get rid of them and not give them the space to organize on the streets, in the factories, in the workplaces. Um, and this is, I guess, goes back to what I was talking about before, about how human rights shouldn't be deemed as immutable, eternal, et cetera, et cetera, because every establishment, every quote-unquote civilization tries to make themselves appear as eternal so they cannot be challenged. Um, and, and I think one example of that is our, how we relate to fascism, because, of course, fascists, um, if they have an opportunity to organize will use those very same freedoms to destroy those freedoms. Um, and that would be one exception for me. Um, as, as for ISIS or ISIL, uh, you know, I've not actually thought about that because I haven't seen any in, in Catford, South East London. So uh, I haven't been worrying about it too much. But um, the, my first 
instinct is to think about what caused ISIL. And this maybe goes back to uh, the, the, the woman at the back who asked the question about the Syrian refugee crisis because, of course, it's the devastation wrought on Iraq by the UK and the United States invading, uh, destroying that country um, and wreaking havoc, creating millions of displaced refugees and so on. And then installing a government which was um, a sectarian one, dividing Sunni and Shiite and Kurd. And basically laying the groundwork for and sowing the seeds of division which have led to the rise of ISIL who gained their support from the Sunni community who were basically persecuted and oppressed by a, a, you know, a, a kind of tyrannical government in Iraq. So this is the, the legacy of what we've done, or our governments have done, in the Middle East. Um, of course, I don't condone anything that ISIL do and ISIS do. They're reprehensible and wretched. Um, and I couldn't stress that enough. But I, don't, I honestly don't know what to say. Would I condone killing ISIL? If they were, if they were attacking our communities, you'd have to defend yourself, wouldn't you? I mean... You wanted to come in on to the, the suspension of human rights. Yeah, because I think it's a, very, it's a very important point, and it goes right to the heart of what we really mean by this simple but profound idea that every human being is worthy of respect simply because they are human without any qualification. So, um, no, I don't think we talk about suspending human rights because that would be to claim that someone is no longer human. But it is to misunderstand human rights, to kind of understand that human rights cannot sometimes be um, qualified or interfered with in pursuit of the greater good. If, um, if a group of um, highly armed people suddenly came into this room and held us all hostage, we would imagine that there must be some responsibility somewhere out there in this highly developed nation of ours to protect our right to life from those who are taken away. Yeah? In other words, when we talk about human rights and the right to life, we are talking about the right to life of every human being. And what human rights says is the taking of life can never be the purpose. Yeah? But life may have to be lost in protecting the lives of others. So it's a bit like with the questions about kind of um, all, the, all the questions that are now so populating the um, tabloid papers in this country about, for example, um, foreign national offenders, foreign criminals, as the Daily Mail calls them. Yeah? Um, apparently, we have to suspend their human rights and so we can um, deport as many as possible as quickly as possible. But, the reason that's offensive to human rights thinking is, you know, those are still human beings. They may have betrayed um, the trust of the community that we normally expect, and they probably will end up being deported in many cases, but they still deserve to be treated as human beings according to the standards of our community, as opposed to saying they've no longer got human rights. I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like only a semantic argument, but it's a really crucial difference. Yeah, I was in, um, I was, um, in Marseille um, on holiday, and I'd just spent the day going round this um, 15th century beautiful fort that had been built 
because the people of Marseille were welcoming in refugees in, and they built this beautiful palatial facility for them. And I got back to my hotel room and saw um, the people queuing up at the border. Um, and the next day was the day they finally did arrange for the trains to take them to Germany, and there were German people there handing out sweets and saying welcome. And to be honest, I cried. I thought, that's the world I want to see, actually, yeah? And I'm actually, frankly, disgusted by the way um, even reputable news organisations constantly talk about the migrants and they're never human beings anymore. This is, um, this is a great test of whether we really believe in human rights. Can we look beyond um, the petty and the particular and reach out to what are simply desperate human beings, albeit they are strangers. Okay. Right, so let's take another two or three more questions. Jane, you had one, and I know then Annette. It's Jane and then Annette, okay? Thank you. A um, couple of points first. First of all, the just uh, talking about the rights of refugees, etc. cetera, uh, just juxtapose that with the rights of the communities into which they're going, which is a bit of an issue point back there about a person who's making lots and lots of money, I think it'd be easy to argue that through that, there's probably some sort of exploitation of some people's rights or some resources' rights going on if you're allowed to make millions of pounds because that's the way it works, capitalism. But my main question really is, what about the um, issue that seems to be growing now is the rights of corporations, that they seem, that human rights seem to be subsumed under the rights of corporations. What can we do about that? It's not in the universal human rights declaration of human rights, I don't think. And now, even the states' rights are being subsumed under trade treaties, for example, TTIP. And it, it, it seems appalling the way that direction is going. Okay. And then Annette. Um, I want to emphasize that there is a positive in human rights of not being universal, because if different parties and different groups have different opinions what human rights is, we actually can arrive to a healthy debate. And uh, I want uh, an opinion uh, of uh, panel participants on, do you think a debate is actually adequate? Because uh, this understanding and expectations that human rights have to be universal, um, actually allowing some groups, some Western uh, societies, for example, hold this uh, belief that they are universally uh, capable of uh, carrying this load and don't uh, actually allow enough debate. Um, and I was pleased to hear that democracy is a mechanism of suppressing minority because it's just obvious. Yet we're so believing in it and so not uh, accepting any, any discussion that we currently arrive into the major conflicts in understanding of human rights when minority suppression became a ticket to European Union journey. And uh, I want to comment on, on that situation. Okay. And then there was this lady up here. I could do with two microphones. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I will have a shamelessly Eurocentric question. Um, we've been very theoretical, apart from the Marseille um, episode about human rights tonight, and I'm just, I'm just really wondering, um, not very far from where we're sitting tonight, on this very continent, we are currently facing the biggest um, refugee. I, I don't like the, uh, the word migrant, uh, refugee crisis. Um, and I'm just, I'm just wondering if you're talking about the test to all of us um, today, 
Um, the last test was the Second World War and it brought forth immense changes in how we relate to human rights. What is your uh, individual prognosis uh, regarding changes in terms of politics and morals uh, in the near future about human rights? Because there will be some and uh, Europe will probably, you know, strengthen its borders. Yay! Okay, that's an interesting point, right? The first one, um, maybe you could take this up, uh, Martin, and that is um, the, the, the question that you raised, that corporate rights seem to be taking predominance at the moment over human rights. Um, yeah, it is a troubling and, and ominous. Uh, I think there's a, a really fascinating example of how of the roots of that is in, in the United States. I remember reading a book called Corporation, by Joel Bacan, in, in, and it talks about how during the um, Civil War, or just after the Civil War, there was an amendment to the US Constitution which in, guaranteed that uh, recently freed black slaves could not be deprived of, of property and, uh, or, or, or of their liberty. And then corporate lawyers went to the Supreme Court and basically argued that they should also be entitled to those same the same provisions under that amendment and with a stroke of a pen you know suddenly what was fought for um, was was suddenly swept away and corp corporate corporations now have the same more or less the same rights I'm not as qualified as, as, as you are Stephen to talk about it but uh, the, the right to dispense with their property the right to um, uh, basically be uh, protected from um, uh, from being bankrupt, uh, their limited liability, and all these things is very worrying. Um, and th I guess this goes back to what I was talking about, about how malleable human rights, in fact, are, how they are a, a reflection of the underlying structures of power and the balance of social forces in that society. And the ruling powers always have to make an accommodation to some extent to those below them, lest they, their, the nature of their power be exposed and transparent. Um, Ant Antonio Gramsci, the great Italian philosopher and Marxist, talked about how power is, is established through alliances and compromises uh, with the with various factions within society. And human rights is also a social construct which reflects that that compromise, um, and but now we see this growing imbalance, this huge um, kind of inequity between the ruling establishment and everyone else, um, perhaps immortalized in the phrase the one percent, uh, that is becoming more and more obvious to us, and it's now intruding into the realm of human rights doctrine in a really perverse way, I think. Um, this is a new stage of capitalism that we're seeing, this high finance monopoly capitalism. Um, but, so I think it's deeply, deeply troubling, but human rights, like any other social artifact, will be contested and can be changed and will reflect changing balance of forces. So in the near future, that could be rescinded and amended, hopefully. Then let's take um, let's take your point, and then we'll take the next point in, in the final one of the three. But um, the, the point you were raised earlier was that human rights, as we see it today, was part of the Second World War settlement. And this lady saying that the refugee crisis is such a big one, the biggest thing that's happened since the Second World War, and we need a new human rights settlement now that relates to the new situation. 
or maybe we need to live by the settlement we already have, which would be... Well, I would agree with you. I think that um, amidst the um, extraordinary, um, tragic human cost of this crisis, yeah, um, we have to cling on to some hope that it will mobilise more compassion and more of an understanding of how we could reach out to our fellow human beings as opposed to what is currently um, dominating the airwaves. Um, I think that... Um, it's extraordinary, um, the failure of European nations to work together, work together in the common good. Yeah? But um, we have to live in hope, perhaps, that they will find a way of doing so soon. Okay. And the next point, which is a really interesting one, and that is, both of you, if you could just briefly answer this, and that is, uh, you know, thinking that human rights are not universal is useful because it keeps the debate going on and keeps the debate on human rights alive. Once you codify it and say it's universal, it's stuck in time. Um, so it's, yeah, I, 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 would, I guess I would, yeah, I would agree with, with you on that. Um, I have tried to argue I don't think they are necessarily universal. Um, and... I do think uh, they need to be changed and adapted to human needs. Um, and like I said before, if we kind of reify them, if we think that they are concrete and um, eternal, then sometimes we forget that they can often be used to conceal more than they can be used to remedy. Um, so I, I, I agree with you that they have to be subject to... To, to compromise, to change, um, dependent on the circumstances at that time. Um, I, I just want to briefly go back as well to, you know, the Second World War and the aftermath. Um, you know, we're already seeing, of course, in the last 50, 75 years, we've seen evolution of human rights from first generation to second generation, which includes social and economic rights, and now third generation, which includes group rights, um, rights to national self-determination. So they are and indigenous rights, of course. And so they are evolving, and they are a product of this struggle that's going on, this constant negotiation between competing powers. But I think the problem is that sometimes... Uh, they presuppose that the fundamental framework that that currently exists will endure as long as those negotiations are, are brought about. So it's a kind of compromise rather than a restructuring. And I think that's also a problem f for me. Okay, and, and do you want to respond to Alex's next point? Well, in many ways, it rather depends what meaning you give to the word universal. Yeah? I think, for me, the word universal in this context speaks to the, um, the idea that human rights are something that every human being has simply because they are human. Yeah? Um, I think, then, the very healthy debate is what are the consequences of that being your guiding star? Yeah? I don't think it's healthy... Um, to have a debate about 
um, some people not being human enough to have human rights. Yeah, but actually, you get <laughs> you get five of my team from the British Institute of Human Rights in a room and ask them any question. We'll all disagree about you know what the consequences are. It's not like human rights people always agree on everything, but this word universal is meant to communicate the idea that every human being has some essential human dignity simply because they are human. The consequences of that understanding for any particular difficult issue, whether it's the use of the internet or the proper approach to ISIS or the refugee crisis, are often the things that civilised people have, reason, reasonable people have civilised disagreements about. Yeah, But in this context, universal is only, I believe, meant to impart this suggestion that the only qualification is being human. Okay. We're coming close to the end of time, so we've got time now, if you want, for two short questions and two short answers. So is there anyone who still wants to ask a question? Lady here, anyone else? Gentleman here, okay. Hello, I don't know whether it's a short answer or not, but it's just something that's always fascinated me around this debate is, I know we've touched upon what universal means, um, but I suppose I would be interested in your opinions on whether or not there has been some imposition of Western values in throughout the kind of the whole universal declaration of human rights debate. Okay, and your speaker on the left. Uh, okay, with respect to universalism, from a philosophical perspective, it's sort of the idea that you've got an absolute goal, right? So say, I want to maximize human well-being. I'm a utilitarianist. Um, it's relative to the situation what I do. I, can, I say, let's kill members of ISIS to protect innocence, because that will maximize human well-being. Whereas in other situations, you condone killing because you're killing innocent people, and so that, will, that act will lower human well-being. So the point is, you have one absolute goal, but each situation, you do different things. It's relative in that sense. Okay. Does that still work? All right, so if you could answer those very briefly. First question, I mean, let's take the second question first. Uh, it, the relativism of human rights depends upon the circumstances, and circumstances are different in different kinds. Well, you meant... It depends on the circumstances. You're trying to achieve one... Yeah, you're, yeah, trying to achieve a goal. So you, you interpret it differently depending on the circumstances. And then the point the lady raised that the Declaration of Human Rights and the way we perceive it is basically based upon Western values. If you'd like to take, take you first and then uh, Stephen, and if you can make them ten short answers. So, so I think um, I tried to sort of address that, that point, the, the first question the woman asked about do they um, embody Western values? And arguably, to, to a large extent, they do, especially the first-generation rights of the rights to, um, uh, rights to property, uh, the rights to, to in, uh, freedom, freedom of movement and association. I think one of the criticisms I've always had is that those rights are essentially hollow and vacuous and meaningless unless you have the means to exercise those rights. Uh, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I think Marx once said, what's the point in having the right to dine at the Ritz Hotel if you can't afford to sit down in, in the cafe? Uh, so th that, that's my problem with, with those rights. And yes, very often, they can be basically a Trojan horse for the imposition of, 
of the interests of powerful, powerful vested interests. So, for example, if you look at um, the, the uh, native, uh, the Canadian um, uh, Native Americans in Canada, excuse me, on the reserves, they're basically being pushed into a situation where, due to uh, the interest of development, of developing the lands that they live on, they've been guaranteed that they can turn that land into private Lockean private property, and that of course that they will their interest will be better served if they follow the prescriptions that have been given to them by those who know better than them about how to develop their needs, their educational health needs, and so on. And this is an example of where the imposition of rights can actually be about imposing Western values. And of course, fundamentally, uh, hum humanitarian intervention. If we look at the examples of humanitarian intervention in the last 50 years, take, for example, what happened in Libya. Okay, that was essentially justified in terms of in humanitarian terms, and it's been an unqualified disaster. Um, if we look at the situation of any great power, how they try to justify uh, their, their noble goals. So, for example, before the Second World War, there are, I think, two or three instances of humanitarian intervention. One was uh, Nazi Germany invading the Sudetenland to protect minorities. Another was uh, the Japanese army, Imperial Army, inv invading Manchuria to protect the locals from marauding Chinese gangs. So we, can, we always have to be ever present and ever aware of this danger, and that's essentially what I've been trying to argue. Okay, and uh, I mean, to take this gentleman's point, which wasn't dealt with, maybe you could deal with that, and then also comment about, about Western values, and that is the relativism depending upon circumstance to achieve the same goal. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that um, when, we're, when we're talking about human rights, we are normally talking about a social construct, yeah, which exists in this world of um, contested power relationships and state dominance of power. So we are looking at something which has been designed to place limits on that exercise of state power by looking at this ethical framework in the UDHR, the Universal Declaration, which is actually not an essentially um, utilitarian framework. Yeah? Um, I don't think divorcing human rights, if you like, from that, um, that political view is, um, is, is, is that helpful, really. Yeah? On the Western values question, um, As I said at the start, in many ways, the um, work that led to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was, um, to a considerable extent, um, informed by an understanding that the Enlightenment values had failed. Yeah? That, we, that we had here in Europe, yeah? you know, this alleged crucible of civilization. Yeah? We had witnessed the Holocaust, yeah? the industrialized dehumanization of one group of people by another group of people, and in a part of the world where democratic processes had been um, in in play, so on you know, the, 
Indeed, it was chaired by the American president's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah? But you had philosophers from China, from the Lebanon, um, political activists from India, engaged in this conversation to try and um, bring out the best, if you like, of all, um, all cultures, all religions, all strains of philosophical thought. Having said that, absolutely, um, human rights are used and abused by um, Western powers on a daily basis. Yeah? I think you know, the idea that um, Martin's mentioned humanitarian intervention, absolutely no right of humanitarian intervention. And I think a huge degree of damage was done to the cause of human rights when it was claimed that invasions of Iraq were being done for human rights. I think huge damage to the cause of human rights is done when we assume from the safety of our vantage point here that we already have the answer to complex social and political questions in places of which we know little. Yeah? That does great damage to the cause of human rights. But that is, that is not quite the same thing, I believe, as understanding that one can, one can look across the human family and despite those differences of race and culture, wealth, sexuality, age, and so on, one can see something which um, is common and worthy of protection, and it's called human dignity. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, that... In uh, many ways, that was a much deeper discussion and debate than we normally have, especially the ones we have in the House of Commons, but don't <laughs> quote me on that. Um, so, I mean, thank you very much for doing that, both of you, because it is a very difficult um, topic to, 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 to go into, and there are different views on that, and I think a lot of things came out, and thank you all as well for the questions and your contribution to this. We, as I say, we've got the next one in, in January, and after that, we're going to send a note around to everyone. A couple of months ago, we had a meeting here, just a working meeting. We invited people from all three groups to talk about the sort of subjects we should be talking about, and we did a sort of list of it, and we made a short list of the list because it was terribly long, and we're going to send that out to everyone in the three networks so that you can comment on it. And then the next meeting we have after January, and we will have four in the next year, um, then they will be based upon what you, what, you know, the, the views that you have on, on that. So we're trying to make it as participatory as, as possible. Anyhow, thank you for coming, and thank you for so many coming, and it's uh, been really pleasant to see. We, we've been competing with a couple of other meetings. The last one we had, we competed with a tango class. This one was not a tango class next door, so it's okay. But anyhow, thanks a lot, and I hope to see you again the next time we have a meeting. Thank you.